Hey everyone, Andy K here. I help to manage these meetups behind the scenes and I'm going to give a brief introduction before I turn it over to Andrew. Thank you everyone for joining us live and welcome to our 33rd virtual weekly hangout. 33, wow. Good stuff. Just a reminder that these hangouts are mostly for discussion and Q&A. So if you have questions for Andrew, you can use the raise your hand feature and at the right time, I'll give you the audio to ask your question, or you can type your question in the chat section. And at the right time, either I or Andrew will read your question. And one last thing, we have our live transcription service running right now. So if you wanna click on the red live indicator in the top left of your screen, and then you could click view stream on custom streaming service, uh, you should get the live transcription feed. It's pretty cool. So. Thanks again for joining us today. Without further ado, I'll turn it over to Andrew. Hey, everybody. So this is my new thing when I start these gigs. Um, for the next 30 seconds, I, I want everybody to turn on their camera so we can do a group a kind of cyber hug. Because otherwise, really, I, I've said this ever since I started doing this stuff, I feel like I'm talking in a cardboard box. Oh, there are actually humanoids out there. Amazing virtual. That's great, thank you. It really does help. Terrific. Thanks everybody. Love it, love it, love it. One of these days, maybe we can do this in person. So um, as Andy said, what we do here, if you're new, I do a little kind of announcement housekeeping type thing. I do a, usually just a spontaneous whatever comes to mind, little riff. And then it's really mostly about you guys and, and answering Questions. So there are a couple that were piped in, written. I'll answer those first. And then Andy will moderate and, and bring you all in as you raise your hands. But a um, couple of cool things coming up. Um, I did get um, the interview set up with uh, Father Francis Tiso, amazing Catholic uh, scholarship that's off the charts. We're going to be talking uh, Monday, um, and it'll probably be posted on Nightclub by the end of the week on his unbelievable book, Rainbow Body and Resurrection, um, where he talks about the using just tremendous scholarship. I mean, stuff that I like had no idea about, you know, um, Syriac Christian mysticism and these uh, um, light mysticisms from all these other traditions. Like I had no idea. So he's amazing. Um, in this book, what he does is he talks about the Shroud of Turin and how that actually could have been generated by a, a Christ actually literally going up in light as a rainbow body, which is, uh, it's, that's part of the Tibetan tradition. And so he talks about the practices. I, I'm, I'm familiar with that stuff, but a lot of what he riffs on, I had no idea. So he's a really impressive guy. So he's set up and I have a couple of neuroscientists on deck. Um, I'm in contact with my buddy, Antoine Lutz, who's a neuroscientist now in France. He worked uh, for many, many years as the right-hand man for Richie Davidson. That's how I first met him. And so he's a good friend that we've reignited a, a relationship with. And he and, and Richie, they're among the world's leading authorities on interface between um, science and, and uh, meditation. He's a really cool guy and a sweetheart. Um, the other one that I'm also gonna be bringing on board, in fact, I have a, I'm chatting with him Literally, when I get off this with you, I'm having a Zoom with him, Benjamin Baird. He's a, a neuroscientist out of, um, also part of this family at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Richie Davidson has an unbelievable gig going on there called our Center for the Investigation of Healthy Minds. I, I've been there a number of times. I've actually spent um, entire weekends in his lab in these MRIs. Um, so these are, they're really dear friends of mine. And Benjamin is, he's a really cool guy. He's also out there now. And he's doing um, some really cool research with Stephen LeBaire, as you know, independently on the neuroscience of these nocturnal practices. So we're gonna be talking this afternoon. We started a conversation a couple of weeks ago about uh, clear light dreams, how to possibly um, create metrics for studying the veracity of uh, lucid sleep. Um, and actually it's interesting because there's a question came in along that. So I'm super excited about that. Um, oh yes, next week, Turkey Day. Good for us, 
not so good for the turkeys. <laughs> Actually, maybe this year, not so bad for the turkeys. Um, we'll see, hopefully. So because of that, we're going to, I talked to Andy about it. And instead of just skipping it, we'll just bump it a day. We'll, we'll just do it on Friday. Um, because otherwise I, I, I have, I, I've spent my entire life working with abandonment issues. <laughs> so I have some real abandonment issues. And so uh, if I don't get together with you next week, I'm gonna like start to panic. So <laughs> we're gonna do it not Thursday because we'll all be stuffing ourselves with um, carrots and lettuce and things of the earth. You know, what somebody once said, you know, don't eat, uh, how did the saying go? Don't eat anything. Um, oh, I'll come, uh, wait, I can't bring it to mind. Don't eat anything. Uh, I, I forgot it. It, it, was, it. it was funny when I heard it, but I can't bring it to mind. So, so um, well, yeah, and I think I mentioned this last week. If not, because this is all about shameless self-promotion. Did I mention this last week? My latest book came out. Yay. Yeah, I'm super excited about this. Lucid Dreaming Workbook. Yeah, I think I did mention this. A step-by-step -step, step guide to mastering your dream life. My first workbook ever. I'm kind of excited about it. Um, I reread it. Um, it's amazing when you write this stuff, you just forget. And there are actually a couple of times when I read it, it's like, oh, that's not too bad. That's not too bad. <laughs> so anyway, there's that. So uh, my tiny little riff for today was, um, was a little bit of a, it is a little bit of a follow-up for the Shen Wang that we talked about, right? Um, other power, this notion of how we confer power onto the phenomenal world and don't even know we're doing it. And the reason this came back um, to me today is that there's all this kerfuffle going on right now about you know this kind of peaceful transfer of power, right? <laughs> Can you believe this stuff? It's like something out of a sci-fi movie or a Shakespearean tragic comedy drama. Um, and so I thought, you know, it's very interesting, peaceful transfer of power. What a very interesting kind of narrative, you know, that, that, that what's happening now in this political scene actually can be kind of, in my opinion, um, taken down to some really foundational psychological and spiritual principles. And, and so what came to mind here, in addition to what I mentioned last week about Shen Wang, literally other power, how like King Midas, and this stuff is super interesting from a psychological neuroscientific point of view, all the ways we impute, project, throw onto the world, confer an ontological status, an actual reality onto the world that it doesn't have. So the fundamental projection, the fundamental transfer of power, we don't even know we're doing it. The fundamental transfer of power upon which all the other secondary, tertiary, quaternary levels of projection are actually accrued is the transfer of power when we actually project, impute, co-create the sense that there's a world out there independent of us. There isn't, there isn't. Um, so in the image of like, I talk about King Midas, like King Midas, everything we touch turns into ego's version of gold which is something solid, lasting, and independent. And so the new riff on this today is that um, this happens not only now, but in a, in a really very powerful bi-directional way. Um, it happens in the Bardos. And so on one level, you could say, well, it starts in the Bardos, and then we you know, live in the echo of that. But actually, it, 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 nothing, nothing stands on its own. These principles are, are bi-directional. They actually lean on each other. So you can say it starts in the Bardos, but you can just as equally say it starts now. And so therefore, this bi-directional principle is happening all the time. And so what happens when we die is that in a very real way, as we enter into the Bardo, um, we... we um, basically take ownership of our projections, whether we know it or not. So all, all these projective impulses, the, the primary one is the impulse of reification to, to make real. When we die, we de-reify, literally. And like the Wicked Witch of the West kind of dissolving, you know, 
how does it go in, in The Wizard of Oz? Help me, help me. It's such a great scene. That movie is, that thing's like, like archetypal film, isn't it? It's amazing. So the Wicked Witch is dissolving, right? So many metaphors in that. Help me, help me, as she melts back into nothing. And so when we die, we're going to die. Ego is going to die like the Wicked Witch of the West. We're going to return to no thingness, emptiness, no bodiness, where, where the projector is fundamentally turned off. And what then takes place that's so interesting to me is we, if we are able to recognize it, we will, in fact, our IP, we will, in fact, rest in peace. We will, in fact, rest in absolute peace, which is, you know, the real, the true nature of reality. But then the question is, can we actually remain in peace? Can we, can we actually rest in this foundational display of the mind? And, um, and so therefore what happens when we die is in fact a peaceful transfer of power, a peaceful, tra a peaceful transition of power back to a source, back to us. And the, the big issue is, can we relate to that transfer of power? Um, because what happens in the luminous bardo of Dharma Ta, the very en end of the death process, is we dissolve back into this matrix of our being. And it's literally the, the thermonuclear power of the mind, this blazing power that we have. Um, most of us won't be able to relate to that brilliance. Most of us, um, it's like Marianne Williamson said, you know, that quote that's often attributed, misattributed to Nelson Mandela, you know, we're afraid of our power. It is so true. And so in a very real way, and I think I mentioned this, oh gosh, I, I'm doing so many silly things I can't remember. In a certain real way, we, we're constantly projecting, giving away our power through the processes of Shen Wang that I talked about last time, through the power, the process of this um, projection of reality period. And so when we die, this peaceful transition of power takes place. Um, and so the question is, can we handle that power? Can we actually accept that power when we're introduced to it? And according to the Bardo teachings, most of us without preparation won't. And the power is too much. It's too brilliant. It's too bright. And so we contract. We contract out of fear. And then from there, we're thrown out of that Bardo into the karmic Bardo becoming and then thrown out of that into this life where then what do we do? We just continue to recapitulate that same process. We just don't even know it. We continue, continue to confer power into sources, completely unaware that we're doing it. Um, and so understanding this then can help us take ownership. This is, this is real um, shadow work, the, deep, the deepest levels of projection, um, kind of taking ownership of our projections at this level. So anyway, that's my riff. Um, here's a couple questions. Oh, and up there, they keep coming in, yay. So here's a couple that came in and then again, we'll open it up. So. Here's one from uh, Jonah. Uh, my fiance and I are very close. I hope you are. <laughs> Otherwise, she's not going to be your fiance for long, bud. <laughs> Let me give you a little marital advice here. <laughs> Sorry, I get goofy on these events. <clears throat> Too much nitrous oxide this morning. My fiance and I are very close, and I lucid dream frequently. She does not, and has never, and never has. Yet we share similar dreams, the same dream or storyline where one sometimes even finishes the other, uh, the other story, the, completes the dream. Why is this and does it happen to other people? <clears throat> Absolutely. Not at all uncommon, my friend. Um, happens to a lot of people. Um, there's a number of reasons for this. You know, on, on one level, again, the thing that makes this seem a little bit curious is actually a bit revelatory of our kind of default into thinking that somehow mind is brain, that everything is just locked inside this silly skull. Uh, it's not, it's not. Gross mind connected to brain, yes, they're equivalent, but not subtle mind, not super subtle mind. This is not limited to brain. And so you know, you can feel this around people. There's a kind of transference. There's a kind of porosity that takes place all the time that sensitives, psychics, intuitives, or people that are very close to each other can just pick up on. I mean, this is really common. People will finish other people's sentences. You're with a, a lifetime partner and, and she'll say, or he'll say something that you were just thinking, like who is reading whose mind. This stuff is actually very common. And to me, it just belies or begets this, 
greater, more open relationship to mind. It's not, it's not stuck in here. I mean, it actually, you, you really see this in, in um, around death and dying, by the way, um, because when the person is dying, the, the porosity, the translucency, the mind really starts to bleed into space. It's, it's, I've seen this hundreds of times. And so not at all uncommon. I, I have to tell you, I have been around teachers, um, really awakened, what I consider awakened beings. And I am not kidding you, absolutely positively have read my mind. I mean, like, no doubt. I mean, just one of many, many examples. And again, if you, if you read the literature, this is just common. But I remember very clearly being in a relatively small Q&A session with one of my main teachers, Kempo, Kempo Rinpoche. And I had already asked a number, like what a surprise, right? A number of questions. And I, even though I had a couple more, it's like, yeah, I didn't want to like hog all the airtime. And so I stopped and I, you know, I still had these questions, but I'm not gonna raise my hand like for the fourth time. And, and so as, as we were, there were, you know, we're kind of, there was this big pause. Um, and I've experienced this a number of times with, with Rinpoche. He looked directly, directly at me and said, you can ask your questions now. I mean, it was just like, no doubt. I mean, no doubt whatsoever. In fact, I probably didn't even need to say anything. He probably was already able to pick that up. Um, not at all uncommon. It, I think it, I, I find it quite beautiful, actually. Um, just mystical in the really nicest way. Okay, so from Kathy, can I please ask you about deep sleep where there is no dream? Yes, you can. I am just wondering why some think it's a state of ignorance. It feels very blissful to me, and maybe I'm wrong, but I thought the bliss of deep sleep is approximation, is an approximation to the bliss of Bardo. Okay, um, yeah, a couple of things here. First of all, and again, this is somewhat prescient with my conversation with Ben in an hour or an hour and a half. You know, levels of, of deep sleep, it, it's not just one um, kind of, blackout when you're in deep sleep. There are actually gradations of, of deep sleep. Um, and even neuroscience talks about this. The spiritual traditions as well, um, there are gradations of what we experience or don't experience as deep sleep. It is indeed a state of ignorance in the sense that it's defined for most people by a lack of awareness, marikpa. So that's the way it's referred to. That's why it's called that. It's really defined um, by a lack of recognition, by a lack of awareness. But however, when it is recognized, um, and that's what sleep yoga is all about, um, then it's actually wisdom. It's no longer ignorance, it's actually wisdom. And in fact, you know, Ramana Maharshi, right? Very famously cryptically said, that which does not exist in deep dreamless sleep is not real. So if you're actually awake, lucid in the deep dreamless state, you're actually in most contact with reality. That, that's, that's literally in Buddhism, dharmakaya, body of truth. That's the, the, that's the truest reality, actually. But that only comes about with lucidity. If you're not lucid to it, it's not wisdom. It's, it is confusion um, and ignorance. And also in terms of the bardos, you know, I'm not sure what bardo you're referring to. Um, you're using that as a catch-all term. Bardo, there's three death bardos, right? So I suspect you're probably talking about the luminous bardo of Dharmata because the nighttime dream, or I should say the nighttime dreamless state, that is a similitude, a concordant experience of that bardo. So that's probably the one you're talking about, but you're not, you're not clear about that one. Um, in, in the bardos, the bardo is also not bliss without recognition. Um, if you don't have recognition, um, first of all, you don't experience anything. It's just a blackout. Um, actually, let me say that. Let me toss in something that's a little bit subtle here. You will experience it, but you won't recognize it. Everybody experiences this, but very few recognize it. And this is the difference between what philosophers talk about as phenomenal versus access consciousness. Phenomenal consciousness is when you have the experience. But you can have an experience and not access it. You can have an experience and actually not bring it into conscious awareness. So this is a really wonderful philosophical contribution um, that deals with the difference between experience and recognition. This is what they say in the Bardo literature. Every text says this. 
everybody will experience the luminous bardo dharmata, but very few people will recognize it. And so therefore, you know, if you, if you recognize it, I mean, unbelievable, that's fantastic. Literally, if there's some stability in that, it literally, literally called enlightenment in one life, you can attain full Buddhahood. But if you don't, and most don't, then you just blown out of that. And then you wake up, um, you know, bewildered, just like in a dream and the karmic bardo will be coming. And let me tell you, without recognition there, that is definitely not bliss. That's a nightmare. Because that's when your karma unleashes. If you read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, that's when all the demons and stuff are chasing you and all that really spooky stuff. Well, there's nobody in there. There's no demon in there. It's just your mind. It's just your habits, in a certain sense, coming after you. And so you're going to run out of that bardo and into your next life because you're fundamentally running away from yourself. So anyway, that's what comes to mind on that. Uh, here they come. Okay. Uh, Jenny, could you please tell me which of your books I should start reading? All of them, Jenny. That's a stupid question. <laughs> Sorry. I, I work, just so you know, I get up about five o'clock. I do my morning practice. And I'm, I'm literally down here in my little nerdy study until now. So I get a little punch drunk just because I, you know, I've been on this for like seven hours. So <laughs> cut me a little slack. Uh, could you please tell me which of your books I should start reading? I am just starting with trying to do lucid dreaming, which I had in former years, but not anymore. Well, Jenny, look what I happen to have right here. <laughs> what, a, what a coincidence. Really, uh, tongue and cheat aside, I would recommend this. This is um, by far of the six books I now have out, the easiest one to read, the most accessible, absolutely positively, Jenny, this would be the one I recommend. And then if it speaks to you, you know, um, the other kind of entry level book uh, is my only self-published book, um, Meditation in the I Generation. And then from there, you know, if that, if my kind of style speaks to you, then some of the other ones may unfold for you. But I, I would start with the Lucid Dreaming Workbook because it's a great on-ramp, super easy to read. It's got all these exercises and things. So um, give, it a, a, a give it a read and let me know what you think. If you don't like it, let me know. Sally, I wake up in my dream, but I don't have a lot of control over the dreams. Can you suggest help? Absolutely. Well, um, this is super common. This is what constitutes the actual stages of dream yoga practice. Um, a lot of people in classic lucid dreaming, they're not so interested in control. They just wanna have fun. But the deeper divers are a little bit more interested in, in working with mind at that level. And so, oh my gosh, um, if you're a meditator, Sally, that's the key. Because again, what, what's happening when you're working with your dreams, what are you working with? There's no pre-existing dreamscape in there. You're working with your mind as it manifests in the dream state. And you know, this is a, one of the reasons why people are sometimes challenged by dream yoga is the moniker for dream yoga is the measure of the path. It will show you where you are. And so no, you know, this is just um, an observation. I see this in myself, all the places I still fail in my dream yoga, all the places I don't have control. It's revelatory, in fact, of our ability to control um, habitual unconscious impulses. And most of us can't. Um, our habits decide for us, they choose for us, they think for us, by the way, just like in the Bardo. And so, you know, first of all, you gain access to the dream. That, that's fantastic. Celebrate that. Shout from the top of your rooftop. Of the three major stages of classic dream yoga practice, the first one, one third of dream yoga is just what you've achieved, just getting lucid. That's one third of the whole deal. But then you go to work. And so the way to get more control over your dream, what a surprise, is work to gain more control over your mind. And so this is what meditation is all about. Um, so really categorically um, practice, do more meditations. Uh, I'll take a couple more here and then we'll open it up um, and I can dance back and forth. From Tanya, as you have been a test subject in Richie Davidson's lab. Yes, I, I've been a lab rat in there. Spent six hours a day. Have you ever been in an MRI? I just had another one after, after I tore my bicep tendon. 
these things are loud, right? I mean, it's like, it's like you better not be claustrophobic. You're, you're slid into this. It's almost like being buried alive, right? Have you been in them? So you slide into them. And so I, when I did, I was in this puppy at least six hours a day. And I had, you know, I had a special headset on so they could send um, instructions to me. I had, um, I had uh, 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 ear um, plugs so they could talk to me. I had one gadget in one hand, one gadget in the other. And then, you know, my head is like literally frozen in there because you, I mean, you can't move. Um, I actually kind of grooved on it. I, I thought it was pretty cool. So I was in there like six, seven hours a day for days on end. I loved it. That's because I'm just so weird. Um, and actually, let me, <laughs> this is what I, this is what I say when like, well, why, did, what were they looking for you? Why, what, why were you doing this? Well, <clears throat> what I say is, well, they were looking for, they were looking for, uh, subjects, you know, lab rats like me, people, people who've had like 20,000 hours of meditation, but show zero signs of accomplishment. <laughs> so I said, I said, that's me. I, you definitely want me in there. So sort of kidding. But anyway, <clears throat> back to the neuroscience lab. I'm curious to know, are you aware of any such testing in which a test subject would have asked to focus his or her attention on a certain area of the brain. <clears throat> for example, focusing one's attention for 30 seconds on the left hemisphere, then 30 seconds on the right hemisphere, and then again on the left to see if the impact can be seen in the MRI. Oh, for sure. Oh, totally. If energy follows our attention, yeah, I mean, absolutely, positively. I mean, both neurologically um, and also in terms of inner yoga, you know, like where the mind goes, the winds go, where the winds go, the bindus go, where the bindus go, so goes consciousness. Um, if energy follows our attention, it absolutely positively does. The inner yogas are all about that. That's why when we do the throat chakra visualization for dream yoga and the heart visualization for sleep yoga, it's based on this um, process. If energy follows our attention, would it not be logical that we would see an increased blood flow always in the focused area of the physical brain? It would be logical, yes. Thus placing our attention would be measurable, yes. It would be so interesting to hear a neuroscientist's view on this also. What a wonderful question. I will bring this up to my friend Antoine because he knows a heck of a lot more about this. You know, I'm sort of familiar with what's happening in the literature but do you know how many papers are out there now? There's like 8,000 papers, 8,000. That's a lot to keep up with. Even people in the trade can barely keep up with what's coming out there now. So I can't, I, I just, I simply can't speak with authority about like, you know, whether what you're asking has, has been very specifically studied, but this is a great question for Antoine. Uh, I think this type of test would all would be quite simple to do with an experienced meditator. Yes, absolutely. I agree with you. You have a scientific mind here, Tanya. So I, I believe that's quite true. Um, and you know, honestly, if there hasn't been a study specifically like you're asking, that would be a cool study to do. But I bet you at this point, I bet you somebody's done it. I, I just don't know. I can barely keep up with the books that you know, people mail me, let alone the scientific papers. I can't read in my sleep. I've, I've tried. <laughs> There's a lot you can do in the dream state. But unfortunately, I don't know how to do this one. I, 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 I yeah, I just don't know. I mean, how can you, unless you had an OBE, unless you had a legitimate out-of-body experience, could you actually do this? But then, but then how are you going to turn the pages, right? <laughs> So, so, all right, I'm thinking here, okay, so we have to design a study, right? So, okay, so I, I do stage seven dream yoga, okay. I leave my body, this is classic stage seven, I leave my body. Um, and so I come down to my computer, I, or I, I open, you know, I go to one of my books, I, I'm stuck. I can't, I can't turn the pages. So either way, I'm kind of screwed. <laughs> anyway, sorry for being so goofy. Um, Tim. I've had a number of family members recently diagnosed with a virus. Oh, Tim, man, I'm so sorry, man. Really, seriously sorry. Um, what a bummer. My niece is particularly very fearful. 
do you have any advice on dealing with this and helping family members deal with this? Oh, Lordy. Um, I, you know, I have to be a little careful here, Tim. Um, I'm not a, a counselor. I'm not a psychologist. This is literally a little bit outside my pay grade. Um, there are professionals that can help you. I mean, I can give you my anemic little recommendations, but I'm pretty cautious about giving this kind of advice because this borders on clinical advice. And that's not, uh, unfortunately, what I neither have the prowess or in a certain sense, the artistic license to really do in this format. Um, let me just settle with this for a second and see what, what I can say. Yeah. So when you say, do you have any advice on dealing with this? I, I assume you're talking about fear. I assume you're talking about fear. So um, first of all, uh, completely appropriate to be afraid. Um, we're always afraid of what we don't know. And so we don't know if when we get the virus, how we're going to roll with it. So what I might recommend Tim as a more generic recommendation is, <clears throat> and again, pardon the self-promotion here, but I did a, a, an entire weekend on working with fear and anxiety in an uncertain world. I, I actually did this program back in May for exactly this reason, to help people work with fear during this crisis. So uh, it's, it's, that's on my website. There's, there's quite a, an extensive, maybe three, four hours in that, on that course um, that we, I think we released it like two months, three months ago, that is exactly on this topic, Tim. It's, it's all about working with anxiety in a generic sense and then a specific sense and also working with fear. So um, I would just simply, you know, if that reads, speaks to you somehow, excuse me, you know, just maybe explore a little bit the, 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 the nature of fear altogether, understand what it's about. Um, and then from that space, when you understand it, digest it a little bit, then you'll be able to relate to your niece and to other family members using your language, using your insights, a heck of a lot better than me just spoon feeding something. And so, but that's probably the best I can do with that. It's, it's, it's a very poignant question. Um, and that's what comes to mind around that one. My heart goes out to all of you on this. this. This virus thing is such a real deal, man. So Sarah, hi, the other day I tried an out-of-body technique and I heard a female voice say, this is not your home. If she was walking up a, if she was walking up a slope towards me, uh, okay, I don't quite understand that phrase. Um, then it was as if, she was talking into my right ear and she said something like this word, mama, mama. It freaked me out a little bit, so I stopped. Why would that happen? Oh, Sarah, geez, I don't know. Um, let me read it again a little bit more slowly and see if I can suss something out here. So when you try the out-of-body, Sarah, if you're on and actually can come on live, this is the kind of thing that really helps for me to actually have a little interaction with you because from what you share here, it's a little confusing to me. Um, I can't kind of grok what you're really asking and what you were really experiencing. So if you're on Sarah, maybe Andy can bump you up and you can actually, we can dialogue a little bit, but your, your question comment just isn't totally clear to me. Barbara, thank you for the teaching. Thanks, Barbara. Can you please say what the ideal realization is from the luminous part of Dharmata? What's the ultimate goal? Oh, nice question. Not, not the other ones aren't. That's a nice question. Well, you know, the ultimate goal in the luminous part of Dharmata, just like I mentioned uh, earlier, is, is recognition. Recognition. It's everything. In fact, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, probably repeated five, six, seven times, recognition and liberation are simultaneous. So the goal literally is enlightenment. If you recognize this, that's, that's enlightenment. Um, and so the ultimate goal is in fact this enlightenment, but just parenthetically, it's not just for you, right? So the ultimate goal isn't just enlightenment for you. In fact, what I, it's, when they talk about complete realization, they talk about twofold benefit, benefit for self, benefit for others. 
And the benefit for self thing, what I often say here is the ultimate benefit for oneself is realizing there isn't one. That's what happens in a bardo. There isn't one. There is no you. That's the ultimate benefit for yourself is realizing there is no self. You know, then you take that. That's wisdom. Then you apply that wisdom. You don't just hang out and, and just stay absorbed in the luminous bardo or dharmata. That's massive spiritual bypassing. Um, that's a real problem with really deep jhana meditation states, samadhis. You can get seriously stuck. So then what you do, the ultimate goal, second half of the ultimate goal is, is benefit for others, is then leading others to exactly the same realization. So um, yeah, that's the, that's the idea realization from the Luminous Bardo Dharmata is just recognition, recognizing your empty luminous nature. That, that's awakening, that's enlightenment. And then from there, honestly, if that's legitimate, you, you quote unquote, will reflexively, spontaneously, without effort, without thought, you will know what to do to benefit others. But that's a different story. So anyway, ooh boy, lots of time chewed up on that, but that's all great. So if we have some um, live questions from you all, now's the time. All right, great. Well, Sarah is here to clarify our question. Oh. So we'll start with Sarah. Great, thanks, Sarah. And then I we'll just... bring... Yeah, then we'll bring in uh, Florian and then Bonnie after that. Okay. Okay, let's start with Sarah. Hi. Hi. Yeah, so um, it was as if this person was, or whatever it was, was walking up a slope towards me from the left. And then in the next sort of little part, I continued. As she said, this is not your home. And then um, in my right ear, she said something like mom. It sounded really strange, like mom or something, but it freaked me out. It was a bit weird. Uh -huh. And I just, I didn't know what it was. Or... Okay. And so tell me a little bit, Sarah. So have you had these kind of OBEs before, or is this the first one or? I've only had a spontaneous one where I couldn't see anything. And a voice said like, what are you doing here? As if it knew me. And I was like, I don't know. And then I woke up again. And it was almost like I went to a place that you would sort of head to if you died. That's what it felt like. Okay. And so what you said something very interesting there. And so did both of these events actually happen within the context of sleep then? I mean, you were doing this in the context of a sleep state? Yeah. So the first time I was meditating and before I went and I, I must have fallen asleep or something because then I... It, it was different from a lucid dream. It was like completely black, but I felt a sense of myself. Right. And it was as if I'd gone to this kind of doorway. I couldn't see a door, but the feeling was that that's where I was. And it was as if somebody, a male voice, like they knew me in a sense, was like a surprise to see me there. Yeah. Yeah, well, a couple of things. And again, these are so hard to really like suss out um, suss out for me to tell you exactly what's going on. But let me just say one thing. Um, and then I, I'll maybe say a little bit more after that. Very often, and again, this is, I don't know. And so this isn't, and, and this is, I'm simply telling you what my experience is. Very, very often when people have OBEs and, and you can actually, you can actually test whether it's an OBE or in fact, a hyperlucid dream. Most OBEs are actually hyperlucid dreams. They're not legitimate out-of-body experiences. They're what Evan Thompson writes beautifully as altered embodied experiences. They're not actual OBEs. Now, I'm not saying that's not what you, what you experienced. I'm not here to do that. Mm -hmm. I'm simply telling you that most of these things are hyperlucid dreams. And there actually are ways to do that, to test that. One is, in fact, a little bit like I mentioned earlier, see if you have the capacity to actually read in that space. Um, mm -hmm. If you can read, that's an OBE. If you can't read or it's really hard, probably a hyperlucid dream. Okay. This is important to suss out. So the next time it happens, that's the first thing I would do because then it helps actually answer like, what was that? Mm -hmm. The other thing you can do to help suss this out is spin in the dream. Because if you're in a, in a legitimate OBE and you spin and you stop, you're gonna be in the same place. Okay. If you do that in the dream, you stop, you're going to be in a different dream scene. So you can actually test whether that's a hyperlucid dream or an OBE. If it's a hyperlucid dream, 
then it's probably just an aspect of your own mind. Mm -hmm. Again, imputed, projected, appearing to be external. It's actually not. Um, it's just your mind appearing in that projected way. If it isn't OBE, that's a different story. Then in fact, it can be so-called external. So, you know, based on those two principles that, that, all, that starts to make it a little bit more even difficult to answer because, you know, next, that's probably as far as I can go with that because I don't know if it was hyperlucid dream, probably a projection of your own mind. And again, it doesn't in any way dismiss the experience. It's still fantastic. But maybe like a good first person scientist, you know, next time you go into these, be curious. Oh yeah, I'm gonna test this. And then you might even actually increase your lucidity through the testing. And then you'll be able to answer these questions for yourself. Okay. okay. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. yeah, beautiful. I love these stories, but I, I can't, you know, they're also very difficult to, um, from a, what's called an etic perspective, an outsider's perspective, not so easy for me to just come in and tell you exactly what's going on, but somewhere mm -hmm. in there, something to play with. Okay. Cool. Thank you. You bet. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, really quickly, before we bring in Florian, a few people have asked uh, about pre-ordering the Lucid Dreaming workbook, if oh, there's any place that uh, they should order from in particular. If oh, you're so preference. kind. Uh, ah, I don't know. <laughs> like, well, there's that small little company called Amazon. Can you believe they're now in the pharmaceutical business? I mean, we got to have some antitrust stuff going on. This is the way my mind works. Jeff Bezos makes about $300,000 a minute. There's something not quite right with that. I mean, Bernie Sanders goes ballistic on this and I have to say, I agree. So, okay, so where was the original question? <laughs> the book. I, you know, unless, unless Andy, you have a suggestion, I, I really don't, thank you so much for asking this. I, I think just going right to Amazon and ordering, Andy, do you know, is there a better way that um, there's some local bookstores. Someone asked if maybe purchase pre-ordering from the Boulder bookstore was possible. Always best. Honestly, really always best to support, especially now in the, in the time of the virus. Cause I mean, places like Amazon, I mean, his, he's worth over 200 billion. That's interesting. You know how much we, um, again, I don't want to get too sidetracked here. How much money, literally the, the phenomena of money is, is a reality currency. How literally we think we're somehow more real if we have more money. We think of people that have more money as being more real. That's a real interesting phenomenological process. My friend, David Loy, I highly recommend this book, Money, Sex, War, Karma, masterpiece. He goes after this money thing in a really brilliant way. But with that said, um, I think what Andy said is probably the best. If you have a connection to a local bookseller right now when everybody's struggling, I, I might encourage that. But thank you for even asking about that. That actually touches me. Appreciate it. All right, let's bring in Florian. So, hello, Andrew. Hello, everybody. Thanks for having me. Yes. And I'm always you. getting so excited in the beginning, so getting my heartbeat down. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Andrew, maybe you can help me out with this because I'm trying to sort something so I can be better help to people suffering nightmares. Oh, so I did, had, I did had a nightmare three days ago. And it, what happened? I'm becoming aware in the middle of the night. It's pitch black, dark in my room. I sense a snake approaching me or creeping up on me. So I'm, I'm, not, re I'm not lucid, but I'm in my bed. So I try to switch on the light. I can't find the light switch. And once the snake is too close, mm -hmm. I realize that this was an illusion, but there is no waking up. I'm transitioning seamlessly from this probably hypnagogic or from those dream images yep. into the waking state, yep. but I'm not in the sleep paralysis. Right. Since, since I can move, I'm touching everything around me. And when, once I'm woken up, I'm still in the same position when I've been doing those movements. Right. Sometimes I would even stand in the middle of the room, you know, and it feels like I'm with one foot in, in, the, in, kind, in one of those dream states and the other foot is in the waking state. Yep. And I thought like, okay, that we are like transitioning and moving through those states, but now it looks like it's possible to, to have both of them or being aware of them at the same time. Correct, correct. <clears throat> 
what would be your take on it? Yeah, that's a liminal state. Um, <clears throat> I find them extremely fascinating. Um, neither here, neither there. You know, in my nomenclature, it's, it's kind of a bardo dream space where you literally have one foot in, in both worlds. And, and also parenthetically, there are neurological signatures that bear this out, that you, you can have part of your brain that's awake, part of your brain that's asleep. Um, and so what you're sharing is not terribly uncommon. So first of all, realize that it, it's not that uncommon. Um, and so the next question back to you is the follow-up, like the issue is like how to work with that, what to do with it, or how to work with that with, with the nightmare principle. So maybe help me a little bit more about that. Okay, well, for, for me, for my, personally, I do see that as a projection of my mind and how I'm reacting to the snake and the danger and how I treat myself. So yeah. I came to the realization that I treat myself more kindly even when I'm freaking out and I should tell myself do better than that. So I treat myself more kindly. Beautiful. But if it's happening to other people, then what you just said, that's that's exactly the medicine I'm asking for. It's like to say it's, it's common, it's possible yeah. to yeah. experience both at the same time. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it's mm -hmm. not. Yeah, and that you said it's a liminal state or barter state, so. Yeah, and what you can do, you know, for, <clears throat> for people who really are amenable to exploring this, either yourself or the people that you're thinking of, you know, um, <clears throat> Jennifer Dumper, Jennifer Dumper, D-U-N-P-E-R-T, she wrote quite a, a nice short book called Liminal Dreaming, which mm -hmm. is actually on this topic. It's worth looking at. But I think, again, what you said is the point that it, it, it's actually not at all uncommon and actually, just like sleep paralysis, i.e. sleep atonia itself, once you understand what it is, it's not, it's not frightening at all. It actually becomes kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. These things become unsettling, um, just like with the first question about fear, because we just don't know what's going on. And so if we have an understanding, then it can actually become kind of cool. It can become like, oh, wow, what an interesting mm -hmm. kind of intra-psychic space to explore. Um, instead of, you know my little maxim here is instead of, oh crap, it turns into, oh wow. And then, then you know, your relationship changes. So I think that's, that's the take home message for me is fundamentally um, altering one's relationship through understanding. And then, you know, for really people, deeper divers who want to go further and further, then that understanding can be augmented by um, understanding the actual structure of the mind. Um, I would say not so much neurologically, but phenomenologically, you know, using maps of the mind they can help you understand like what's actually happening here within the structure of the mind. Um, and so that's a way for people who really want to go further. I would recommend that. Um, Yogacara teachings are super helpful on that. Um, other contemplative teachings, uh, you know, Advaita Vedanta, Shaiva Tantra and the like, they have really elegant descriptions of mind and um, they can help you, you know, kind of situate where you are, what's happening. And, you know, it's like a little bit like installing a GPS, you know, you're in there and you go, oh, that's what that is. Oh, that's what that is. And all the while, like you said, you know, you can cultivate this kind of witness awareness where you simply sit back with this lucidity perspective and just simply watch the entire display. And then it becomes really cool. It's, it's more entertaining than your neighborhood Cinemax. <laughs> so that's what I'd recommend. Okay, bud. One more thing for you, sure. since we're talking about the books. There's, I will post it in the chat. It's called bookshop.org and it's a platform where those independent uh, bookstores in the US and UK are coming together. So you Wonderful. can find out your local bookstore still delivering the books during Love the it. Corona. Thank you. Thank you for that. Because I think on one level, you know, it's like the curse of convenience. And again, I don't want to get terribly political, but um, when these massive behemoths, you know, they're, they're starting to take over the world, there's a reason for regulation and antitrust um, issues. And, and, and so thank you for that. I think that's really a, a nice contribution. Terrific. Thank you. You bet. Thanks, Florian. Uh, all right, next we'll bring in Bonnie and then Glenn. Hi. Hi. Can you hear, can you hear me? Yes. So um, I'm part of the Dreams of Light and the Embodied Philosophy, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Oh, group. thank you. And I'm loving both of these 
your teachings, they're tying together threads for me of 40 years of immense investment in practice and oh nice but um i've i've never heard of lucid dreaming really before i started this work and okay. about 40 years ago i did a three-year an analysis with a jungian and we did a lot of dream work most of the work i was doing with him was around dreams but it was like finishing the end of dreams or it was called active imagination i so, know that work yep Okay, so that was really my only um, understanding of dream work. And then in 1984, I went to uh, teaching with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Robert Thurman at yeah. the Amherst College. Wonderful. And my life was turned upside down. The Dalai Lama walked out on the stage and I started crying and I cried for the entire teaching. I have no idea what he said. I just knew that I'd waited my whole life to hear whatever words he would say. That's awesome. And Very cool. So, so um, that teaching was in October and I left the teaching and I stopped someone and said, I want to learn how to meditate. And they asked where I lived. I was at a boarding school in New Hampshire and they said, Oh, you have to go to IMS. So immediately I called IMS and I could not get into a retreat because they were doing their three-month retreat. It was their right. fall retreat. So I had to wait until February of 1985 to start doing retreat work, which I did. And just, it was like a fish returning to water. I just nice. fell in love with the practice. That's awesome. And then in 1987, I sat with um, Ajahn Sumedho, um, uh -huh. uh, and. I started falling into deep, deep samadhis and having incredible experiences of my body dissolving and trying to make my way back to my room without a body and really bizarre, bizarre experiences, but actually kind of lots of fun as well. Really? Absolutely. Like really good drugs. And then uh, in um, 1993, I fell in with a group of people who we're bringing the Dalai Lama to Tucson, Arizona. So I worked with that group of people and they became my best friends. That's awesome. And along, along with that, Kenshin Kanchag, Yeltsin, came to Tucson and I took refuge with him. Okay. So I've had just the most amazing opportunities. The minute I got on that bus, I feel like one teacher leads me to another teacher, leads me to another teacher. And so... Um, I was working with Guy Armstrong and he yep. said, you have to come to uh, a, a teaching at Spirit Rock with Sokni Rinpoche, yep. which I did. And then in 2007, Mingir was doing his sort of dog and pony show with the electrodes on his head. And yep. he came to Tucson to give a talk. And about the five months later, I started having dreams almost every night about Mingir. Huh? They were nonverbal. They were exactly the same dream under different circumstances. Mingir was um, appearing and inviting me like just with his finger telling me to come. And um, I had these dreams like almost every night for eight months. Cool. And so I decided I go to India and uh, work with Mingir, which I did. But before I went, I decided that I wanted to went visit all these places where enlightened beings had li lived. So I went and sat in Ramana Maharshi's caves, and I went to Sai Baba's ashram. He was still alive, and I went to um, Amaji's, and uh, I did sort of the ashram route. And then I landed in Bodh Gaya, and um, the Karmapa was giving the Manlam teachings, uh -huh. and so I went to those and then I moved into Turgar to study with Mingir. And at one time at lunch, I was telling him about the dreams that I had had, that these dreams were, you know, him inviting me to come and study. And he just started laughing. And you know how some of these Tibetan teachers, they just laugh and they kind of, they're all sparkly. But anyway, he didn't really 
give me an answer other than laughter. And then in um, March of that year, I got a message that one of my closest friends had died. And I ran into uh, Bodh Gaya to see if I could talk with her on the phone because she was dying, but she died before I got to speak with her. And uh, I got back to the monastery and one of Mingyur's attendants saw that I was crying and she took me in to see Mingyur. He had a group of people, Cortland and his whole group of people around him. And he sat me down next to him and he said, there's nothing to worry about. I will do POA for her. And he, you know, touched the top of his head. And I was still crying. I was kind of like out of it. And he grabbed me by the arm and he said, nothing to worry about. I will do POA for her. That's great. And Honey, sweetie, sweetheart. I love hearing about this. I really honestly do, but I got about 10 people in line for questions. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, it's all great. And this is difficult for me because I love hearing what you're saying, but I want to pay homage to the people that are waiting. And plus I have to leave in about 15 minutes. So do you oh, have a particular okay. question or something? Please yeah. understand where I'm coming from. Okay, is that all right? Of course I do. So uh, the, the, the other night in the um, one class, you said something about, lucid dreaming and luminosity yeah so the dreams i was having about mingyur in 2007 it seemed like my body was in the light and his body was in the light even though we were in an auditorium of lots of other people okay. i couldn't see anyone else other than these light two light beings myself okay. and 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 mingyur so was that a lucid dream or not i guess that's the question yeah well, you know, lucidity, Ibani, is used, um, it's again another one of these kind of multivalent terms, which means it has different meanings depending on different contexts. So on one level, it was lucid in the sense that it was really clear. And it was, you know, as, as you mentioned, just really luminous. So in that, in that larger sense of lucidity, that what in fact was lucid. In the context of the, the nocturnal practices and the, the, these meditations, lucid dreaming has a very specific definition which is basically you know, recognition of the fact that you're dreaming when you're dreaming. And so therefore um, within that definition, then there's also gradations of lucidity. Sometimes, like I mentioned earlier with the question of um, out-of-body experiences, at the very highest end, you can have hyperlucid dreams where you're completely aware in the dream and the dream is actually more, more real than this. On the very other end, you have you know, barely lucid, you think you're awake, but not quite. And so somewhere along that vast spectrum is what lucidity applies to. So your experience was definitely lucid in that first sense. But if there wasn't a quality of like, wow, I know this is a dream, then it wasn't actually a lucid dream. See? Yeah. Okay. That doesn't, it doesn't in any way negate it or dismiss it. In fact, what you're talking about is what Tenzin Wangyal refers to as a dream of, of uh, clarity, which is these really beautiful magical dreams connected to Dharma, to teachers that are extremely beautiful, rich and wonderful, good signs. You know, your, your unconscious mind is bathing in this kind of wisdom and that's manifesting in this kind of expression. So even though it may not have been a classic clinical lucid dream, you should still honor and treasure it for what it was. Um, and it's a, that's a, you know, it's a beautiful thing. It's a really great sign, but lucid dreaming itself, more technical on-ramp. And then you start to do some of the things that I was alluding to a little bit earlier. Does that make sense? does. Awesome. Thank, you, very, very thank you so much. I love your tankas, by the way. Those are awesome. Appreciate it, Bonnie. Oh, thank you. Take care, Derek. Thanks, Bonnie. All right. Next, we'll bring in Glenn, then Premdas, and Myra. Yeah, and then we're going to have to, I have to get ready for my interview with uh, Dr. Baird. So, and then I'll take two questions came piping in. So I'll ask, answer those as well. So we got five more to go and then I got to go. Okay. okay. Good afternoon. Hey, buddy. Uh, one little uh, comment and then a question. Um, I recollect that Richie Davidson's people, he had some PhD students who are medically equipped to go and study advanced llamas when they're dying. And yeah, I was, I'm involved in that study. I know all okay. about that. Yeah. All right, good. Interesting. Well, I'd like to hear sometime about that. Yeah. So my question- Actually, you, you can read, Glenn, you can read a little bit about it in uh, Evan Thompson's book, uh, Waking Dreaming Being, because Evan was at this event. Um, so he devoted several pages to that um, little episode, that little experience. The first time I met him, 
Huh. Um, but yeah, it's still going on. They're having some, uh, a few cultural, I mean, there's so many issues, but yeah, I, I'm very, very familiar. In fact, I, I, I was invited to advise this team before it even started. I, so we had this beautiful uh, little meeting that I was involved in. So super cool stuff. But anyway. Okay. So my, my question is this, the other day uh, I'm in my meditation practice and uh, the portion of it that's open awareness uh, I am very aware that I'm having a lucid daydream in the middle of this. And the instruction I have for open awareness is just to let appearances be and then appear and dissolve. However, because it really feels like a lucid daydream and very much like what happens at night, I have this urge to, so in the daydream, there's a white shape like person, but not quite that's coming and sitting on my left side in front of my visual field. And I have this urge to do what I would do if I were dreaming, which is play around with this person or scoot it out of the thing. But that goes counter to the instruction of what to do in waking open awareness. So I just let it be there and then it disappears. Yeah. Uh, and then I'm wondering, uh, so I guess I should be aware. So I'm kind of conflicted there. And I'm wondering if well, you, you can do, you know, you can play a little bit with both, Glenn. I, <clears throat> and good for you for centrifuging those two out. What I would do <clears throat> is, is what you did first is just simply uh, maintain whatever arises within the embrace of open awareness. Um, but then there's no reason whatsoever that you couldn't one day just say, hey, just for the heck of it, I want to relate to this in a different way and then see what happens when you do that. So I think there's room for both. Just as long as you're aware that you're not using the second one as a type of distraction or entertainment, as long as you set the rules in advance that, hey, the next time this happens, I'm going to engage it with some of these other approaches and just see what the heck happens. There's nothing wrong with that. So on one level, pay homage to the technique, which is great for you. But on another level, don't let it handcuff you. When you have an experience like that, if it happens again, bring your, your curiosity and inquisitiveness and just see what happens if you just try, try kind of playing with it a little bit. That's what okay. I would do. Thank you. You betcha. Cool. All Thanks. right. So a couple of quick uh, questions came in quickly and then we'll get the last two. Hi, Linda. Have you used Richie Davidson's Healthy Mind app? You know, I haven't. Um, I'm not much of an app person. There are thousands of them and some of, some of them are super cool. But I, I do my very darndest to stay away from that kind of thing. That's just me. So I, I, I don't know that one. Um, I recently read the history of the Karmapas. I have that book and learned of the third Karmapas face appearing on the moon when he was, when he died, I guess is there's a typo there. Um, I guess this was a version of rainbow body. Also learned of the vision that there will be only 20 more Karmapas. Do you know why 21? I don't, um, has to do with the, the 21 Taras, but I don't know why 21. You know, there, there, this type of question often comes up around, and I've, I've asked lamas this, like, you know, they talk about in the Bardo's, every seven days, the Bardo experience is recapitulated. I've asked many of them, why seven days? Not one has been able to give me an answer. So I, I can't answer that. I don't know why 21. Sorry, <laughs> I'm not sure. Any, I'm sure somebody does, but I don't. So, okay, two more and then I got to run. Okay, well, we've only got one more left and it's okay. uh, Prem Das. So. Hey, Prem Das. Andrew, yes, sir. Good My Sanskrit great. scholar, how are you? Great, great discussion as always. Uh, question for you, as I you know, continue sort of uh, contemplating the five elements and all that, uh, of course, in the Western paradigm, space and time are, are sort of dimensions of the same sort of concept. Thanks to Einstein, yeah. Um, general relativity. So, uh, so uh, what does the tantric uh, uh, tradition have to say about time? And is, that, is it related to any of the elements or not? No, it's not, it's not directly related. Time is a construct. Um, Literally, even, even, actually even Einstein said this. So uh, the mystics can definitely agree. On an absolute level, there is no time. It's, it's literally a construct. And so what my friend David Loy writes, you know, the, the, the sense of self doesn't exist in time. The sense of self is time. So it's a construct of the egoic matrix. And so 
what we want to do is use, again, we still have this illusion of past, uh, future, and even present. Even the present moment is an illusion. But that doesn't mean we can't use it. Um, in fact, we do. We use the illusion of coming back to the present moment as a way to enter the fourth moment. That's uh, uh, the, what Surya Das talks about is Buddha standard time. It's beyond time. And, it, and again, philosophically, Wittgenstein said this very famously, you know, if, if by eternity, we understand not endless temporal duration, but timelessness, he who lives in the present lives eternally. Um, so it's a construct, physics will tell you that, science, um, the mystics will tell you that, time is a construct. Um, and what we wanna do is use the illusion of the present moment as a conduit to get to the fourth moment, which is beyond time altogether. So um, yeah, something like that. Yes, sir. The fourth moment you speak of, is that identical to Uriya? Uriya state? Yes, I think you could say so. Yeah. Yes, I think you could say so. It's, this is the term, pretty sure, um, pretty sure it came from Padmasambhava. But yes, it, it basically refers to Dharmata, right? Uh, beyond time, before time. So I think you could say, and again, I'm not like the Hindu traditions, I'm, I'm familiar with them, but they're not like my main gig. But it, it, to me, when I read about Turiya, it sure as heck sounds like that to me. Roger, okay, thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you, everybody. I got to run a little bit earlier than normal because I got to get ready, um, do a couple things before my Zoom call with this neuroscientist. So thank you so much for joining me. I really do get off on these things. They're so much fun to me. Um, we're going to take next Thursday off. We'll be back next Friday um, for another round. I guess it'll be number 34. So until then, um, wear your face mask wash your hands and keep your hearts open. Okay, everybody? Bye.